Morning, everybody. Uh, for those of you that don't know, my name is Anne Marie Schubert. I'm the District Attorney of Sacramento County. The answer has always been in Sacramento. Over these years, hundreds of individuals have sought justice for these victims and their families. There were upwards of 50 rapes, 12 murders, crimes that spanned 10 years across at least 10 different counties, Northern, Central, and Southern California. Yesterday, an arrest warrant was issued, a complaint was filed, charging that individual with two counts of murder with special circumstances for the murder of Brian and Katie Maggiore here in Sacramento in February 1978. We found the needle in the haystack and it was right here in Sacramento. On June 17, 1976, I went to bed not knowing that in just a few hours My life as I knew it would change. It is unconceivable that such a creature exists in this world. May he rot in hell. I am Anne-Marie Schubert, and this is Inside the Crime Files. Welcome to Inside the Crime Files with Anne-Marie Schubert. I am Anne-Marie Schubert. This podcast takes listeners inside and behind the scenes of the investigation and the prosecution of some of the most notorious and horrific criminal cases in California history. In this podcast, we also examine unique techniques, innovative ideas, and truly inspirational stories that have come out of some of these tragic cases. Perhaps there's no better example of innovation and inspiration than the case of the People versus Joseph D'Angelo, also known as the Golden State Killer, the original Night Stalker, the Visalia Ransacker, and for those of us in Sacramento, known as the East Area Rapist. In this episode, we will focus on how a new DNA databank law resulted from the relentless pursuit of solving this case and how that law has changed the world of solving crimes with DNA technology. I'm honored today to be joined in part by Zoom, but also in person by Bruce Harrington, Ron Harrington, as well as Jill Spriggs. So welcome all of you. Thank you so Thank much you. for joining Thank me. Thank you, Anne-Marie. Um, let me just start off. Um, Jill, why don't we have you introduce yourself to the listeners and tell us a little bit about your background. My name is Jill Spriggs. I was the previous bureau chief for the California Department of Justice um, for five years. And previous to that, I was at the Sacramento County DA's Office Crime Laboratory um, as a DNA analyst and as a lab director later on in my career. My discipline is biology, which means I'm a DNA analyst and have conducted DNA analysis on hundreds of cases of rape, murder, assaults, et cetera. Great, thanks so much, Jill. And I think our listeners probably know that you and I have known each other probably since the mid nineties, worked on a lot of DNA cases together. And you've been on one of our prior podcasts involving the Grim Sleeper. Um, so, Mr. Harrington, Ron, how about if you introduce yourself and tell us a little bit about yourself? Sure. Uh, just a little background. Uh, there were four brothers. Uh, I am number two, Ron. Uh, I started off, I'm an attorney, and I started off, um, believe it or not, as a prosecutor. I was a 
deputy city attorney in Los Angeles and did that for three or four years and then ultimately came down here to Orange County and I am a what they call a plaintiff's personal injury attorney and I, I specialize in handling medical malpractice cases on the patient side. Excellent. So, well, thank you for that. Bruce, how about you? Uh, I'm Bruce Harrington. I'm the oldest of the four boys. Uh, moved to Orange County in early 1970s, uh, law school at UCLA, uh, and had been a real estate corporate attorney for the first 10 or 12 years of my career, and then evolved into uh, land development, land entitlement, and I'm still doing that. Uh, Keeping yourself busy. Uh, yes. All right. So I think most of our listeners and really pretty much anybody that watches the news understands the, the crime spree of the Golden State Killer and the fact that he was probably the most prolific serial rapist and serial killer in California history. We know it's at least 13 murders and upwards of 50 rapes. Um, but today I want to focus with you all really on your brother and your sister-in-law and the determination that the two of you had to find the truth, to find justice, and really how it was your relentless pursuit of that that ultimately led to the changing of California law related to DNA and really how that has become, in my view, the greatest tool ever given to law enforcement to find the truth. So that's, that's kind of what tees us up today for why we're here. But before we kind of go into the evolution of the, of the changing of the law, I want to ask you if it's okay um, to tell us about your brother, Keith, and his wife, Patrice. Be happy to. Um, to kind of put it in perspective, to give you an idea of how special Keith was, uh, older brother Bruce, co-editor of Law Review at UCLA, uh, dog of determination through Prop 69, which we will get to, uh, total superstar. Uh, number three brother, Doug, uh, PhD, uh, neuropsychology, uh, specialized in brain trauma of all things. Uh, and he is credited as being the co-author of the working definition of what constitutes a mild traumatic brain injury. Uh, and again, Keith and Patty actually had their brains bashed in. I don't know if that had something to do with it, but uh, he went on and developed concussion protocols, uh, was the Anaheim Ducks, you know, in-house at the beginning. But to put that in perspective, we then had the youngest brother, Keith. And Keith, the smartest of all of the brothers. Uh, even more frustrating, he was the best athlete. Okay, I was number two in that regard, you know, also. But uh, uh, Keith was uh, cum laude, uh, Phi Beta Kappa out of UCI. Uh, he was going to medical school. Uh, it was unheard of, but he was actually finishing medical school early. He wanted to be an emergency room doctor. He had already uh, interviewed up at uh, San Francisco in general. It appeared that that was going to be the direction. Uh, and Patty, a pediatric nurse, they had actually met at the hospital, one of the hospitals he was working at. Uh, both of them wanted to help people. Uh, both of them just total, total superstars. And uh, 
it just, uh, it was so frustrating. Uh, our, our dad, unfortunately, was the one that found Keith and Patty. And uh, uh, our dad was really never the same after that. Uh, our dad spent the last 15 years of his life trying to solve this case. Uh, but to give you an idea of how frustrating it was for the family not knowing anything, uh, the, the first year after the, after the murders, uh, you know, at, at least I, and I know I've talked to Bruce about this, you know, you'd wake up at three o'clock in the morning. Uh, you, you became a friend of the alarm clock at, at three o'clock. And uh, uh, you, you just, how do we solve this case? All the information that the family knew within the first couple of weeks was that Patty was raped. They were both bludgeoned to death and nothing ever made sense. So uh, our dad obviously was very, very involved. And there were so many private investigators involved. Uh, we got together as a family and said, hey, we need more information about the circumstances of this case, because if law enforcement is not able to solve it, we as a family want to try to solve this case. So uh, back at that time, there was a one-year statute of limitations on tort cases in California. Uh, so as a family, we got together and decided to file a civil wrongful death case against John Doe. Oh, interesting. And the discussion was, okay, we would go before a civil judge. We would drop a subpoena off on the district attorney's file. Uh, and my argument to the civil judge was going to be, Your Honor, I only have three years to serve a defendant in a civil case on a wrongful death case. Your Honor, in order for me to be able to do that, to comply with the statute on the civil side, we need all the benefit of whatever investigation there was on the case in order to try to solve the case on our own. That gives you an idea of just how frustrated the family was. And, and how far you would go to help solve it. Exactly, exactly. So that was, uh, you know, kind of the first year, second year, third year, uh, our, our dad was so involved with so many different investigators, so much effort was put into this. Uh, but it was just so frustrating not knowing. Right. And it was the not knowing that just gnawed at you and continually gnawed at you. So, so let me let me ask you this. Um, well, I sat through your victim impact statements when D'Angelo was had been convicted and I listened to all the crime victims. And I think one of the things that caught me the most was your comment that these two human beings lost the opportunity to save so many lives. Oh. And that really, um, really brought it home in terms of the loss that your family suffered and this really the world suffered, right? So let me ask you this, fast forward, uh, at some point your family becomes aware of this thing called DNA. And if, if, I'm, if I'm correct on it, it's, um, when did your dad die? Let me ask you that. You know, our dad died in 1995. So uh, the crime occurred in 1980. He had spent really the last 15 years of his life trying to solve this case. Uh, Unfortunately, when he passed in 1995, the DNA connection in the Irving 
never had even been made at that point. And it was really, everything changed in 1997 when uh, we received a call from Larry Poole at the Orange County Sheriff's Office linking Keith and Patty's case to another murder that had occurred in Irvine. And that really started this whole process of, of, of DNA. And from roughly 1997 through to about the year 2000, uh, there were, as I recall, uh, I think 10 murders that had all been linked by DNA, uh, you know, to the same individual. And then I think it was roughly uh, March or, or so of 2001, where the DNA connection was confirmed with all of the rapes that occurred up in the Sacramento, Northern California area. So by 2001, all of these cases had all been linked. And I think our family knew that the only way this case was ever gonna be solved was through the DNA connection, especially after all this time had passed. Uh, so that is when this whole push mission to focus mission uh, quest probably would be the best term. Uh, and, and that really leads up to 2001-2002 uh, when we started looking into this whole issue. And, and in the DNA laws in, that we're applying. Exactly. Right? And, and at, at the beginning, what was so shocking is that uh, the working theory in 2001-2002 was that we all knew the last crime that had been associated with this individual was 1986. Correct. So the whole big question is, well, where was this guy and why had the crime stopped in 1986? Was he in prison? Was he in prison? So the, the basic working theory was that he was in the prison system on some other rape charge doing 15 to 20 years. And that's why nothing had really happened. So we started looking into this, and the, the first thing that was shocking is that if a, if a felon in the prison system refused to give a DNA sample at the beginning, it was a $100 fine, right? So all of the felons in the prison system obviously refused to give a DNA sample. So kind of maybe walk us through, Bruce, on like, you know, how did this come up? How did you, what was your first efforts with our legislature? And then how did it evolve into a proposition? Keen off of the narrative thought process that the perpetrator was in prison somewhere, whether California or other states, we focused on trying to get a DNA sample from those felons or anyone that was in prison. Um, it turned out that there was pushback from uh, the politicians in Sacramento, um, not wanting to allow a blood sample to be taken purely for the, this new DNA idea. Uh, and it became a hot political issue that evolved from late 2001 into 2002. There were a series of hearings in Sacramento um, uh, Senate Bill 1242 specifically was focused on authorizing law enforcement to take a blood sample from, I believe it was limited at that time to those that were in prison 
for life or those that were on death row. Okay. Um, and there was a hearing at the Public Safety Committee in Sacramento to uh, present that bill, ask the Public Safety Committee to approve it. It was sponsored by um, Jim Brulte, um, an active um, pro-police uh, investigation uh, politician. Um, and there, uh, we, it, it, there were many meetings in the background that led up to this public hearing, and each, each of those meetings did not produce a, a compromise result in the necessary legislation. Now, correct me if I'm wrong, Bruce, but because I've been a little bit involved in some of the DNA laws, but California was lagging behind other states. Yes, the whole DNA concept, again, surfaced in the late 90s. Um, Virginia, um, two or three other East Coast states were jumped on that concept um, wholeheartedly and, and begin within their jurisdictions to use this new um, biological information to try and solve cases. And California did lag is the biggest state, the most highest prison populations. Um, and that was a little bit of a frustration from uh, working with the Los Angeles district attorney, the Orange County district attorney and the other district attorneys now that we knew that we had this mass killer out there. Uh, and that led up to pushing to bring California up to the same level as these other active states. And the FBI at their office in, on the East Coast was also using that technology. And California wasn't, and it was frustrating. Fair to say you didn't get really the success at the legislature. So you, you and your family took it upon yourselves um, to try to push what we call a ballot initiative. Yes, we knew this public hearing was going to be contentious. And I was one of three um, speakers, public speakers uh, at the hearing, whose purpose was to, from a victim's perspective, to present um, positions that they would otherwise be sympathetic to and understand that the rights of those victims who had suffered from, again, we didn't know who it was, but certainly a mass killer, uh, had a more important um, uh, perspective to get a DNA sample than a prisoner sitting in prison for his life. And he doesn't care whether he gets fined $100 or something. And that in turn opened the door to begin the process of taking blood samples from those in, in prisons. Uh, unfortunately, over the next three or four years, we had a lot of samples, but no results. What got you and your family to the point, uh, you're, you're obviously very familiar with Proposition 69, which was on the ballot in November of 20, 2004. 2004. So what, tell us about what that was and why you felt that was necessary to try to really completely changed the nature of the DNA database. The hearing in 2002 for SB 1242 resulted in um, almost a, an opened wave of focus from our point of view and many of the other victims uh, to expand and use the DNA aggressively. 
Um, but again, we kept getting pushback from the uh, Senate and from the politicians at Sacramento and they, they were frustrated that 1242 went through. They were frustrated that they were that, that we were law enforcement were taking samples from the felons and we wanted to go much further and use the DNA uh, concept to really accomplish three basic things. One, to solve all crimes. Uh, and, and, and it was demonstratively clearly obvious uh, by going to those states on the East Coast that were already using it, that they were solving old, old crimes and they were really bringing to rest a lot of grievances that occurred to victims that otherwise, like we were, very frustrated. And then we also wanted to deal with the issue of use, using DNA to um, protect the innocent for those that are wrongly uh, accused and do it efficiently. Let law enforcement do it at the arrest level. And if you arrest five different people because you think they might have done it, if, if their DNA was in the system and you could compare that against uh, the, the crime scene DNA, many of those people would they'd be, they'd be resolved and they could be able to walk away and not worry about it. And then the other more important thing was uh, to prevent crimes happening in the future um, through using DNA database to, as time evolved, to use that as a really biological core tool to solve a case. What ultimately happened was the decision was made to pass an initiative. Uh, what ultimately proved to be Prop 69, uh, and its focus was, was to expand and create, as a matter of state law in California, the DNA database. We dedicated more resources, more people, and we created what I have called Team Justice. The answer was, and always was going to be, in the DNA. We knew we could and should solve it using the most innovative DNA technology available at this time. It is fitting that today is National DNA Day. We found the needle in the haystack and it was right here in Sacramento. The initiative itself would require it was written by some folks out of Los Angeles County, Orange County, really people I know and have tremendous respect for, but Camille Hill yes. was this amazing prosecutor from Orange County. Lisa, Lisa Kahn in, in Los Angeles, Camille Hill in Orange County, um, half a dozen other people, all lawyers, all very articulately focused on the science side of DNA uh, drafted the legislation. Uh, and the, and the, the specifics of it were that it would require all convicted felons, as well as all felony arrestees, people arrested for felony crimes, to give their DNA upon arrest. So that would greatly expand the number of people that had to give their DNA into this DNA database. Exactly. Yes, and and again, putting it in perspective, in the late in the late eighteen hundreds. Finger, fingerprints oh, right. became the 
day-to-day -day way in which you try and solve a crime. Basic fingerprints. Um, and taking your fingerprint, whether you're a teacher or you're gonna get a license or you're gonna do most anything was very commonplace. Growing up for me, and I'm sure it was for our parents and the grandparents. DNA then became the new fingerprint and still is today. Fingerprints are still used, but DNA is so precise and easy to keep, test, and then compare. Um, that was really the philosophical and the science vision of what Prop 69 was all about. The new fingerprint, which again, to reiterate, identify the guilty, exonerate the innocent and prevent future crime. Correct. So- And um, let me interrupt, you mentioned the arrestee and we, we, draft, we drafted Prop 69, which passed and went into effect on January 1 of 2005. And that then allowed conviction felons and some high grade misdemeanor convictions to give a sample, convicts, people that had been found guilty. Also built into Prop 69 was the concept that in five years, we needed enough time to set up the database, create the science, and then in five years, allow those same samples to be taken at the arrest level. And that gets back to the third leg of the stool of why Prop 69 made sense, because we wanted to stop future crimes and we wanted to build the database quicker than from the time someone was convicted of a felony or a high-grade misdemeanor and do it at the arrest level, just as you would normally do fingerprinting. Common sense, you get arrested. One of the first things you do when you go into the courthouse door or the police door is they take your fingerprints. And then they go and they test for other fingerprints to see, did you do other things? Who are you, et cetera. So in five years, starting in January, 2009, it kicked in that they would now take a DNA sample from all, most all felony, serious crime arrestees and high grade misdemeanors. Okay, so just to kind of wrap up this piece about your family's pursuit to try to solve your brother and sister-in-law's murder, is it true from what I've heard that your family funded the cost of this initiative and uh, to get it on the ballot and then to encourage the voters to vote for it? Yes. And, and, and if you don't mind me asking, you can tell me it's none of my business, but how much, this is 2003, this is, almost 20 years ago, how much did it cost to, to qualify it and then to, to try to get it out there in the public domain to support it? There, it cost north of $2 million round figures to get the initiative qualified for the ballot. And that's the most costly part of the whole initiative process in California. You go back some percentage of the previous year's voters, you 10, 15%, you have to get that number as a minimum number signing the initiative process application in order to qualify. And you have a very limited time, it's four and a half or six months or something like that to collect those, those signatures. And you see it often in front of the market people standing there with a cardboard box and saying, please sign this. 
initiative. So we raised, we tried to raise as much money as we could um, um, by making, you know, going to places on the weekend, my wife and I and, and brothers would go to the local, you know, Speedway Motor Place and sit there just like a market with our, would you sign this petition please? So we tried to, and then there were other people con contributing money. There was a formal campaign to raise money and we funded whatever the gap difference was to make that initiative qualify. Um, and, and we made that by June or July of 2004. And then it was just a matter of going through then a public campaign. There was an opposition um, um, cadre of folks and there were those in favor of the initiative, mostly myself, um, brother Doug, um, who would go to podcasts like we're having now and chit chat back and forth one side or the other. Right. You know, you have a family here who lost a brother and a sister-in-law and, and you went to extraordinary lengths to solve their murders. Um, so, so Jill, let me have you come in now and because you are the DNA guru um, and we know um, about your background, but maybe you can kind of give the, the listeners an idea of how does it work? How does the DNA data bank work and how ultimately did Prop 69 chase, change the face of crime solving in California? So I can, I'm going to just focus on California right now. So all of the local crime laboratories in California that have DNA capability uh, put into their prof put their profiles into a computer system. Um, and those local labs are called LDIS or local DNA index system. Those local profiles and those profiles can be from rapes, murders, assaults. They flow into the state DNA index system or Estes, which is at the Jambashinsky DNA laboratory in Richmond. Also in Estes, you're going to find that's where all of the databank profiles are for reference samples from felons and arrestees who are felons are also sent there. So each month, um, law enforcement agencies are collecting reference samples from felons and arrestees that are felons, sending them to the Jan Bishinsky DNA Laboratory in Richmond. They're upload into what we call CODIS, which is a software that houses all of the DNA uh, profiles. So just to kind of give you a little information, right now, the number of uh, arrestees that are felons and felons that are in the databank is over 3 million. And what was it before? So Prop 69 passed in November of 2004. How many um, felons were in the databank then? It was roughly 300,000. So we, so we have multiplied it tenfold. Tenfold. And you can remember, Amory, that before the CODIS software, you and I did a DNA case that was the first John Doe warrant that was ever solved on a rape case. And if you remember, it was back in 2001. And once I finished the DNA analysis, I had to fax over that profile to the <laughs> Richmond Laboratory to put into the databank. 
Now it's all computerized and you put the profile into a computer database software and it gets sent right to the data bank. So things have, have really changed. So, but let me make sure that the, the folks understand. So it's not just about collecting samples from the felons or the arrestees, but you have to have the crime scene samples to compare it to because you're trying to essentially match it up, right? Right, so you've got to have those crime scene samples, whether it can be a saliva sample, it can be a blood sample, it can be a semen sample. Those samples are also uploaded into the CODIS software, sent to the state DNA index system, and they're searched within the state of California. So, but it doesn't stop there. The next place it goes is to ENDIS, which is the national DNA index system, and that goes up to the national. So that's searched throughout the US. And if you look at the national system, there's roughly, roughly approximately 14,500,000 offender samples in there, uh, over 4 million arrestee profiles, and over 1,100,000 forensic profiles. Those are being continually searched 24-7. So if you look at just in California alone, typically the average number is about 500 hits that we get in California. And when I say a hit, that means an unknown DNA profile to a known DNA profile, or it could be an unknown profile to another unknown profile. And then, you know, you have a serial killer or you have a serial rapist on your hands. So let me make uh, sure, let me, let me kind of make it simple. So it's when you say unknown profile, we're talking about basically a crime scene sample. So right. basically the computer is essentially looking to see, does the DNA profile of the crime scene match any one of these felons, the arrestees or the convicted. But let me ask you this, just to kind of show how far we've come because of this extraordinary work of the Harringtons, before Prop 69 passed, how many DNA hits were made off the databank? Um, how, how many? There was only before Prop 69, 1,247 hits. As compared to today, there's about 500 hits each month. So, and, and if my numbers are correct, as of just this last summer, because these number of hits are reported, since Prop 69 has passed, we've had over 90,000 hits on the databank between crime scene samples and convict, either convicted offenders or felony arrestees. That's correct. And I think it was Ron that said, this is really the core this is the core of solving crimes. This really truly is the core. If, if this initiative had not passed, think of all the crimes that it would not have been solved. Think of all the rape kit analysis that would not have been done because you wouldn't have any data bank to search them with or to search them against the felons or the felony arrestees. It really truly is the core of solving crime. So one of the things, Jill, you and I have talked about this before, I think on previous podcasts, is that you and I for many years taught this cold case class where detectives would bring unsolved murders and we would try to figure out new things, new innovative ideas. And I'm not sure if you remember or not, Jill, but one of the cases that was brought, and this, this example is really to show the power of what you all did here, was a 1989 murder in Sacramento of an an 80-year-old woman from the north part of Sacramento who was, um, was impaired. She had hearing issues. She had to have folks come to her house and provide her with meals. She had very difficult, she lived alone. 
And in May of 89, she was found uh, bludgeoned to death, brutally, probably similar to uh, Keith and Patty. And she was sexually assaulted. And this case was brought to this cold case class. And so one of the recommendations this is probably in 2000, early 2000s. One of the recommendations was we'll go back and check all these, these kits, these sexual mm-hmm. assault kits. Mm-hmm. And in fact, and I believe it was 2005, uh, DNA was recovered and it didn't match anybody in the system that Jill's talked about. It, there was no matches. So then Prop 69 comes around. And as you mentioned, in 2009, this provision required anybody arrested for a felony um, had to give their DNA. And so um, this gentleman, I guess you could call him, um, well, we wouldn't call him that, but um, an individual was arrested for a felony crime, uh, a drug crime at the time, and they took his DNA when he was booked. And that was what solved the whole case. It was a rape murder of a woman named Sophia McAllister. And the individual who murdered her was a person named Donald Carter. And but for that felony arrestee, the sample being collected at that time, that case would never have been solved. And so I think, I mean, that's one of many examples. Um, But what, and I remember that her grandson, Miss McAllister's grandson, like you, Bruce, went and testified before the legislature on other bills trying to expand this DNA capability. And I mean, I could spend two hours talking about various cases that this is really impacted, but, but really what the two of you did and your family and our state, you know, our voters um, has really changed the face of crime solving. Um, Am I right, Jill? You, you are absolutely right. You have done more than anyone has done that that I know of and you know it it also went on to do familial searching too which was the first right Right. because of you we were we got to go ahead and do familial searching too and solve a lot of crimes such as a grim sleeper so um and I I really think it's a it's also a woman's issue um I've, I've talked about that um because we were allowed to use this technology use what's in the data bank, which is very important to solve a lot of rape cases. Right. So for me, one of the things I always, when I look back at what you and your family did was you, you were on this pursuit to solve these murders. You changed the face of, of DNA. You did not solve, this did not solve the Golden State Killer because he wasn't in the data bank. Um, Kind of before I ask you kind of the final questions, and if it's okay, and you can tell me no, but I mean, April of 2018, someone called you and told you there was an arrest on the Golden State Killer. And I just, I think for me and perhaps the listeners is just to ask you kind of how that played out and how you felt about the fact after 40 years, nearly 40 years, I should say, on, on Keith and Patty's murder. Yes. How that all played out? I was in the shower. It was about 7.15 in the morning, and I got a call from older brother Bruce uh, informing me that uh, they had arrested what they believed to be the Golden State Killer. Uh, uh, Bruce and I had talked about this. Uh, uh, we had sent for a documentary a couple years before, and like yourself, you've done such a, a great job of keeping this in the public eye. 
we elected to do the documentary, which was not the most enjoyable thing to go through. But uh, we really, as much as we had to keep it out in the public domain, we really didn't think this case was ever going to be solved because so much time had passed since 2004 when Prop 69 passed. Uh, we'd really kind of given up hope. And uh, all of a sudden, out of the blue, I got a call. I'm in the shower. The case has been solved. So uh, it, it was a total shock. And it, 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 it brought everything back at the same token, which, which was hard to deal with. Uh, Bruce was up in Sacramento that day and, and I thought just did an outstanding job speaking in effect on behalf of the victims uh, with what we knew at that time. Uh, but it was, uh, it, it, it was such a long haul over 40 years. Uh, it just, I, I guess total shock was, was kind of the best way to describe it, at least from my perspective. So. Bruce, you got thoughts on that? The press conference that morning of the arrest, that was a seminal day. Uh, standing with you, all of most every other uh, county district attorney in seven or eight uh, that had been involved in the case. It was, it, was, it was huge. I don't remember a lot of the details. It was a little overwhelming. Um, not for me, but my goodness, it, it's not just the Harrington, Keith and Patty, but we had, you know, 12 or 14 total murders. We had over 50 rapes and probably many more we don't know about. I don't know, but, but it was an outstanding day. It really was. And then that led, and I'm sure you'll talk a little bit about it, but that led to the next 12 or 15 minutes and ultimately his conviction, his confession and his presence in prison now for the rest of his life. Right. Mr. Harrington, I don't know if, if you know this, if Amory's told this, but he raped the woman two doors down from me when I was 12 years old. And I got up that morning and heard his car running and actually gave a statement to the police at 12. And then mm -hmm. he also raped two girls in my high school. And it was a very, very scary time. And I can't thank you enough for doing the initiative that you did in Prop 69. You're very welcome. You're very welcome. And, and the stories from the girls' point of view are so heartfelt. Telling stories like you just related to was the arrest and that news was huge, but more personal and just sit back and how could this possibly happen to so many people? Um, and young girls to me, it wasn't, it was the whole panoply of, he was a, just a very bad guy, he, bad guy. Um, well, I think, you know, for me, and I think for anybody that had anything to do with this case, it was, it was the needle in the haystack that was being looked for by so many people for so long. And thank goodness for this brainchild idea of gene genetic genealogy. Right. But I think for me, I just wanna kind of wrap this up by kind of asking you is how do you feel about this whole, the consequences of 69, a Prop 69? And you know, this, this, this should be one of your family's greatest legacies. It is, it, 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 you have to be humble. 
um, and 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 it solved the killing of our brother and his wife Patty. Um, it solved the rest of the crimes for the Golden State Killer, Mr. D'Angelo, um, and it clearly has created a, a new fingerprint for the 21st century going forward. Um, and um, fingerprint in the sense of the technology. And now we have familial searches, and now we have the use of genealogical databases that are out there, some of which can be accessed now to compare hits um, to crime scene information. Um, and more, I think as time goes on and people appreciate the impact of how the Golden State Killer was finally solved, that you don't look at the DNA investigation uh, warily. It's it's no different than a fingerprint. I get back to that comparison. It provides so much information to prevent old crimes, protect people that were wrongly accused, and to stop future crimes. And that's I get back to those three primary goals of the initiative, and it's proven to be true, and it's growing and becoming even better. As technology goes on, we have rapid DNA tests that they can take within hours of a, of a sample of a little pink print when somebody cuts their finger breaking into a house or whatever, and they can take that sample and immediately understand who, who that was and who it is if they're in the database. Great. Ron, you how know, about your final words? Final words. Uh, in our family, it was very unique. Uh, when our dad passed, the, the, the torch, the baton was passed to older brother Bruce. He is the oldest, he's the number one brother. Uh, Doug and I helped a lot to, to the extent that we could, but uh, older brother Bruce was the, the heavy oar. He was the oldest brother and he had to carry the torch. And uh, I, I actually uh, really have to commend him for all that he did because especially with Prop 69 and getting, uh, you know, that into and through the initiative process and just getting it qualified for the ballot. I mean, that was just a, a monumental task. Uh, uh, we were so worried. We weren't, after all this effort, even going to be able to get it qualified. So uh, I'm sending these applications out to every law firm in Southern California that I knew, trying to get as many signatures because as you know, in, in the qualification process, inevitably there was gonna be certain signatures that are disqualified. So, uh, but it was just a, a huge task. And finally it qualified. Uh, and then the big fear was, there was so much at risk. What happens if it lost? You know, right. what, what right. I mean, that would have been the biggest nightmare ever if Prop 69 had not passed, but, uh, 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 my bottom line is I, I just want to commend older brother. He was he was the heavy war and the, the, the person most responsible for Prop 69. Well, I'm just going to wrap this up by saying thank you. Um, thank you on behalf of law enforcement. Thank you on behalf of thousands of crime victims and countless family members of crime victims. So. Jill, thank you for being here today and bringing light on how well this DNA data bank works. And uh, 
so thank you both. And uh, thank you. to the listeners out there, we look forward to you to listening in on the next episode of Inside the Crime Files with Anne-Marie Schubert. Thank you, Anne. Thank you. I am Anne-Marie Schubert, and this is Inside the Crime Files.